Then he told me that there was carbon on the valves, which was no news to me because there is always carbon on the valves. My own mechanic picked up the car yesterday and returned this afternoon with the news that there was carbon on the valves. I asked him why the car broke down so frequently and he said it was probably because carbon got on the valves. <laughs> I told you a Ferrari was useless in the city. Buy a Bentley and stop carrying on. How dare you. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Lowe. And I am Cole Rowlane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. And we are at episode 122 today. It's our first episode of 2020. What are we kicking it off with? Happy New Year. I picked something awesome. And that is A New Leaf from 1971. Written and directed by Elaine May, starring May herself, along with Walter Matthau, Jack Weston, and George Rose. Henry Graham has squandered his wealth and must seek out a new source of income to maintain his idle, rich lifestyle. Namely, marrying a rich woman and murdering her because he can't stand the thought of altering his lifestyle or sharing his life. And this film is notable for a couple of reasons. First, it is the first movie directed and written by Elaine May. And at the time, it was noted in contemporary sources that it was the first time a woman had simultaneously performed the three functions of writing, directing, and co-starring in a major feature film. A New Leaf is based on the short story The Green Heart, which also started as its working title, and that story was by Jack Ritchie. I don't know about you, but I was a big fan of the Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, and he sold something like 123 stories to that periodical over 23 years. I can guarantee that I've read some of his stories because in the ninth grade, my whole thing was going to the library as often as I could anytime I got a break in school and sitting down and reading as many of those as I could find. My mom either subscribed to it or just happened to have a lot of them, so I went over it all the time. That and Ellery Queen, which he also sold stories to. The film was critically successful when it was released, but it didn't do very well financially. And I was one of those folks who was totally ignorant of it until you showed it to me. So thank you. You are welcome. Right off the top, I want to say I love Elaine May. Her filmography to me is akin to someone like John Cazale's Only a Handful of Pictures, but Batting a Thousand. You haven't seen Mikey and Nikki, right? No. Do you have a favorite out of everything else? I think this is right at the top. I love The Heartbreak Kid, but I think this one edges that film out. There's no way that I can choose, I feel like. I love them all for very different reasons, mainly because her comedic style just appeals to me so much. And I think that's because it's clear that she has expectations of the audience. She doesn't pander. Her jokes require attention and intelligence. And her voice is so distinct, even in just these four feature films. And sadly, I think the lingering sentiment that she harbors about all four is probably uniform as well. Maybe best summed up by the phrase, she remains bitter about the experience. 
I think A New Leaf is a fan favorite. If you're a fan of May, you love this. And I'm just so sorry it took me this long to become acquainted with it. I am delighted to note that our collective great taste has been confirmed. <laughs> yes. It was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry this year. Now, we will definitely touch on how the screenplay that Elaine May wrote follows the lines of the story, the film she shot includes an extended plot, and this version, released theatrically, differs from all of those sources. But first, I want to keep talking about Elaine May. She started her career as a child actress. I think she was three when she was first on stage. Her parents were traveling Yiddish theater actors. And as she continued to work, she gravitated more towards improvisational comedy. Was that when she was four or five? <laughs> Probably. Now, this is when I catch up with her, this partnership that she forged with Mike Nichols. It all started way back in 1955 in Chicago. They were founding members of the Compass Players. At one point, they were both asked to leave because they were <laughs> so good. And they formed their own stage act, which became Nichols and May. I'm going to include one of the favorite sketches of ours in the links. But if you've seen any of them, you probably get the sense that they're intellectual and cultural and social, appealing to both kind of the low end and the high end, as some people said. And one thing I hadn't really thought about as I was watching them, but which makes perfect sense now, she was really removing the stereotype of women in comedy. In the sense of the types of characters she was portraying? And just doing it. But yes, she would be a professional person, not necessarily a wife or a housemate. Not the secretary, but the doctor. Yes, and the joke was not on her. Unlike other duos, there wasn't kind of the smarter one and the dumber one. They were both playing at the same level. And Mike Nichols talked about how different they were as well in their improvisational style. He always wanted to know where a sketch was going. She preferred to explore ideas as scenes progressed. And I think when you understand that, seeing everything that she does, again, makes perfect sense. So that's why she shot over a million feet of film for Mikey and Nikki, basically. Do it again and again yeah. and again. Try something different this time. Yeah. And then at the height of their popularity, they quit. She got tired of doing the same material over and over. She then turned to playwriting and then to the movies. She's been nominated twice for an Academy Award for her screenwriting for Heaven Can Wait and Primary Colors, which Mike Nichols directed. She also wrote the screenplay for The Birdcage, again directed by Mike Nichols. She did a ton of uncredited script doctoring, too. For instance, one of the big examples of that is Warren Beatty's Reds. She contributed a ton to that. And that also led to Ishtar, which we're yes. going to get into later. <laughs> I know you love it, and I love it, too. Now, after Ishtar, she didn't direct anything again for 29 years, and then she directed the TV documentary Mike Nichols' American Masters in 2016, which I think, honestly, is the first time I really got a sense of who she was. Now, luckily for audiences, she got back to Broadway in 2018, and she won the Tony Award for her performance in the Waverly Gallery. That made her the second oldest performer to have won a Tony Award for acting. And it was announced in 2019 that she was going to direct a new narrative feature. So we'll see if we get that. Well, that distinctive comedic voice, that is something that we see right away, I think. I like to think that this helmet 
or series of helmets actually that Mathau wears, but especially the first one in the first few scenes of this was all her idea. They are just absurd enough. You've got Mathau's huge exposed forehead. It's the visual equivalent of knowing which words sound the funniest. And that precision with language is to me her greatest skill and not just the writing, but the deployment of those words too. Is it the same for you or is there another quality that specifically appeals to you more? No, I am right there with you. And I think you'll see that her direction is not about funky framing. It is really all about these words and these performances. We do get a couple of things that actually pop on the screen that accentuate what's happening. I'm thinking in particular James Coco's grotesque face up <laughs> super close yeah. or her hanging over a cliff in the background while he's in the foreground reading about poisoning. But before we get to those, her comic timing and her delivery, it's just impeccable. You go back and watch those clips of her work with Mike Nichols when they were really the darlings of the American comedy scene in the late 50s, early 60s, and you can see it over and over again. A perfectly chosen word at just the right time, often improvised, which tells you even more about how fine her comic instincts are, and then the audience fairly explodes with laughter. One example I'm thinking of is a sketch set in the funeral home where they give a street address of 441118 Southeast Huguenot Walloon <laughs> Drive. There are so many perfectly crafted jokes in this movie that are so clever and dry that you could almost miss them if you're not paying attention. We did one in the opening scene, that whole buy a Bentley, how dare you. They're just perfect little dry jokes. There's one with the uncle who is leaving everything he owns to Radio Free Europe. <laughs> when Matthau is introduced to someone at the society function and he asks if there are any relation to the Boston Hitlers. That's the scene I almost did. When discussing May's character, she's not engaged. She's a botanist. They're not just gags either. Each one of them reveals character. That Bentley versus Ferrari line gives away his preference for superficial style, always opting for that first over pragmatism or substance with his luxury, even if it breaks down more than it runs. It is a downright offensive suggestion to him, and the delivery of that line speaks volumes about both the quality of the joke and the shallowness of the character in just three words. That exchange about her being a botanist, it works on multiple levels too. On the surface, it plays into that trope in which never shall the twain of the bookish and romantic interest meet. But it's also so specific and works with the sound of the word. They could have just as easily said scientist or teacher and moved on. There's also a layer to do with class. It indicates that she doesn't play that typical high society game. She's incredibly rich, but she's not a layabout like him. She has an actual vocation aside from accumulating and then spending money in these lavish ways. She's an outsider and an object of their scorn for this reason as well as many others. None of these gags are throwaway lines. She's as good with visual jokes, too. When that horse lays down right after the Bentley Ferrari thing, that is so weirdly memorable. The bit I already mentioned about her hanging over the cliff, it's ironic and tense. All these things, aside from being funny, do so much. And her simple physical comedy is on the money, too, with the bit with her head through the armhole of the nightgown. By the way, she sewed herself into the dress and didn't tell Mathau about that. It's Perfect. So she's doing these little director things to manipulate, to get the right performance. So that exasperation that you see on his face, that's real, at least partly. 
And then when she dribbles her drink adorably down her chin when they're sitting around the campfire at the end and just smiles right through it, she can do everything. She's like a comedy Swiss army knife. Just a side note here before we get too far into the chronology of the film, something I never really thought about when I was a young kid and just beginning to watch movies, there needs to be material for the opening titles to run on top of. Some movies make me very aware of that. This one does. It feels kind of like a forerunner to those saxophone-drenched city montages that so many films in the 80s use for their opening credit sequences. This isn't that egregious, but it did make me think to ask you if you have preferences when it comes to this. Do you like pre-filmed title cards and get on with it like we had in the 30s? More of a showcase for design like Saul Bass in the 50s and 60s? Something more modern like Seven where it's actually showing us elements of the film if not outright story beats? Which of those do you like the best? Or something like Boogie Nights, where it's completely not included and made a big point of at the end. You know what my answer is going to be. It depends on the film. <laughs> I like all of those different examples that you mentioned. I was just watching some Christmas films over the holidays. And the older ones definitely employ that British lion with Christmas carols and the title sequence. Or Turning the Pages of a Book, mm, one a of my one. personal favorites. But I didn't note this one at all, so I guess it didn't really register for me. Well, the chickens are about to come home to roost for Henry because he's been followed all over town gallivanting by his lawyer trying to contact him. And the alarm bells go off finally when there's a bounced check at his club. He goes to meet with his lawyer and he is broke, which has to be explained to him in about 12 different ways. By the way, the actor playing the attorney apparently really knew his tax code. So Elaine May didn't give him the script. She just had Mathal ask him increasingly absurd questions until he looked like he was about to have a breakdown. When I first saw this, I really thought this was a Mike Nichols part. So much so, I thought, is this a sketch that was abandoned that she's recycling? But you reveal it's actually the opposite. None of his lines were written and Mathal just pounding away with his deliberate, willful obtuseness and absolute unwillingness to understand or accede to any of this. It is hilarious because of that very thing that she did. Henry is obviously spoiled and not one to take responsibility for himself, but how long does it take us to realize the degree to which that is true? I think it's that moment in the beginning when he revs the engine after they've just asked him how he runs this thing. So it's literally seconds into the movie. Yeah. Basically. Well, we get a pretty accurate look into the character, I think, throughout this melodramatic farewell tour that he embarks on. He's visiting his favorite places, including breaking out the fourth helmet he's worn in 10 minutes. This days he's in his interior monologue and that tweeting bird song in the background, it's such a great exaggeration that we can't miss the intent. His self-absorption and self-pity verges on being cartoonish. My favorite physical moment is him gently touching the awning at Lutes. And it's not just those inanimate objects either. He does this with his gentleman's gentleman, Harold, softly grasping at his sleeve. This is a great performance from George Rose, I think. It's a bit of a thankless task to be what little conscience something as dark as this film has, and he is definitely a compromised character. I'll get to that in a little bit. But at least he's honest enough to lay out the circumstances in a way that Henry can understand. He will only stay if he's paid, and 
the alternatives seem to be commit suicide or get married. These are the two choices. Because if you don't pick one of those, your future is ready to wear and working out at the Y. Unthinkable. Do you see this George Rose part as the Eric Bloor character the same way I do? I do, and with a dash of even more comedy. Can we talk about Mathal again for a second? Oh, sure. Any time for that is good for me. I love watching him play a character, one that I don't think is actually him. I tend to see a lot of what I think of as him in some of his other roles. He's so incredibly good at it. And Elaine May didn't want him at first. He wasn't her first choice. Christopher Plummer was. Someone generally sexier, more of a matinee idol type than Walter Matthau. Less rumpled, let's say. He's way too suave for this role, <laughs> I think. Well, speaking of suave, we're also introduced to James Coco here as Matthau's uncle. This could only be better and more properly grotesque if this was Zero Mostel. True, good point. And his uncle hates him, by the way. The most important function of this character for me is that he puts into words Mathau's exact condition and dilemma. Aside from Harold, his manservant, his uncle understands him the best because he's functioned as a guardian for so many years and has had to be subjected to his behavior. Because of all that close contact and observation, he's quite properly diagnosed him as an aging youth with no prospects. <laughs> which I think is a really important choice of phrase when it comes to Henry's every other interaction with any human being. So Henry has decided to choose not the path of suicide, but looking for a rich woman to marry, one preferably completely alone with no relatives. Renee Taylor is my favorite of these. She really shines as the liberated woman who is maybe a bit too liberated. Maybe you need to stuff some of that back in. Until he begins the process, Henry thinks it's going to actually be easy to accrue a wife, and that is definitely how he thinks of it. The way he understands all of this before he embarks on this journey is so narrow. His strategy in the pursuit and courting of these women, it's just too much. It seems almost 19th century. Yeah, to me, this character feels completely asexual, almost terrified of the notion. How does this read to you regarding his sexuality? I'm with you. There isn't any sort of prospect of, oh, I actually want to touch this person. And I certainly don't want them touching me. Do you feel like he's coded as gay at all? Or is it just complete asexuality? No, he is so in love with himself and his <laughs> possessions, not another blooded human being. Well, I think it goes perfectly in line with the aging youth part that Coco invoked. It explains everything that he does. And when I say youth, I mean it's all in line with the worldview of a very young child. You have the tantrums that he throws, his reaction in particular to someone putting one of those straw hats on him is hilarious. <laughs> Later, he's laying in bed throwing a fit about all of this not being as easy as he wants, basically kicking his legs and pounding his fists. And then... On the other end of that, his morality is so underdeveloped that murder is a viable solution to his problems without batting an eye, much like a child's worldview. They don't think of the far-reaching consequences of their actions. Are you saying that as a child you were prone to think about murder? I once, and this was revenge, this was to put a bully in his place. I don't sure. know if I've ever told this story or not, but... The school bully, when I was, say, six years old, kindergarten, first grade, whatever age that is, he picked on everybody. And he lived across the street from me. And one day I invited him over to play. 
him not knowing that I had hidden a hammer in the sandbox. Were you reading The Art of War at the time? I, I don't know what I was reading, but I was going to teach him a lesson, and when he turned his back, I cracked him on the head with his hammer. Fortunately, it only opened up a wound a little bit. It didn't crack his skull. It didn't cause further damage. I was really lucky in that regard, but I had no clue about how terrible this could have been. Because we could be doing this podcast from prison, yeah, I guess. I was only thinking, I'm going to make him stop treating people this way. And he did, for the record. God, I hope so. But it's very much that thing. I'm not still doing that as an aging playboy. <laughs> Although if I had this kind of money... Maybe. Well, not hmm. that he has any more of it. Anyway, we're introduced to Elaine May's character, Henrietta, at a society function. So she's finally shown up about a third of the way through the film, which is very interesting. And we see her. We don't notice her at first. She's kind of in a corner behind a door with glasses that are a bit too large, an odd hat, and a teacup falling slowly. She might as well have a bird's nest or a cuckoo clock on her head. And I love that she's kind of half smiling into space. Part of her genius, I think, is how she disarms you that way. She is so good at playing just a slight flake that she can make the audience underestimate her and then lay them completely flat with how sharp and clear-eyed she is. Henry learns that she is enormously wealthy and sees that she's also incredibly clumsy, which makes her perfect. This is where I'm reminded how amazing this is that this is a debut feature film with her directing, adapting, and starring in this thing. That adaptation, that is a specific triumph all its own, I feel like, to unearth and emphasize the parts of the story in a way that feels like a perfect extension of the comedy that people already knew her for. Her character is an heiress to a large fortune in this case, and it turns out that this has some small thematic ties to the heiress, the William Wyler film that we did not too long ago, if only in that my response to her in this is similar to that film too. She is the one at the party that I would gravitate to, though not for such cynical reasons as Mathau or Montgomery Clift might do. Were you making these connections between those two films as well? I was. I thought it was so interesting that we happen upon these themes because we had both seen this before, but I didn't think about it at all when I was watching The Heiress. I think what struck me the most is the idea of this kind of marriage bargain that we'll see a bit later, but I'm honestly kind of surprised that you said that you would gravitate towards her. It seems like she would be infuriating at the same time until she starts talking about herself and shares parts of herself. I like kooks, what can I say? <laughs> that is like Catherine though a bit. Once you actually give her a chance, you find what a warm and interesting human being she is. While we're talking about connections, how does this work for you in terms of the themes that tie all of her work together? I'm especially thinking of this and the Heartbreak Kid, for instance. I'm curious to see what you say. The first thing that comes to mind is this interesting male character who is so repulsive in so many respects and yet manages to triumph. She definitely has one of those every time, though I guess Rogers and Clark in Ishtar are not necessarily repulsive, just kind of dim bulbs. They don't really do anything that's abhorrent. The same way that Groden does in The Heartbreak Kid, or the same way that John Cassavetes and Peter Falk are damaged in Mikey and Nikki. I think the thing is, even as horrible as he is in this particular case, 
that she gives him something to hang a little bit of redemption on that her character sees and then she helps the audience see. In this case, the thing that appeals to me, Henry is smart in that way of idlers who actually paid attention during their education. And I think that Henrietta likes that. He knows things. It gives her confidence to be with him. And then it makes her confident as an extension. And that's the thing that I responded to most, as you mentioned, you are into kooks, that there is something to be said for in your own selfish way, taking that part of someone to make yourself better. And it gives him a different purpose. And some of that within him, I feel like, stems from that never being bound by the same rules as everyone by virtue of social position, but it also comes from having knowledge. Her particular brand of comedy has always been on the intellectual side, in some cases whether people wanted that or not. You know, and I've probably said this on the show before, I'm a firm believer in the notion that generally people only want things to be so smart and no smarter. It makes them uncomfortable or intimidated when they come up against someone or something smarter than them, which is just baffling to me. It's an opportunity to learn something, to get better, and that's exciting, I think. Unfortunately, I don't think it was that exciting to people who could adversely affect Elaine May's career. How much of a role do you feel like that played in how few films she got to make? I think it does play a role. I don't want to necessarily lean on sexism or anti-intellectualism because she does have a reputation for eccentricity. And I've got some other theories about it that I want to kind of hold off a bit if that's okay. Okay. Well, for right here, I think it's still an interesting dichotomy because the character that she plays is not intimidating. She may be book smart, but she's not at all sophisticated. Not what you would think of as an elite. She is the sympathetic, relatable one with her preference for Malaga coolers and all the crumbs in her lap anytime she eats a meal. They call her primitive, is how they refer to her. And he rightly calculates that she will be, based on all of this stuff, amenable to his marriage proposal. Vulnerable may even be a better word with his flattery against her insecurity. And they're right. She says yes. And it's a little tough to watch this part with how she is simultaneously so full of self-doubt and yet so adorable. And she didn't write the part for herself. It wasn't intended that she would even direct or star in the film. Carol Channing, by the way, was the studio's that first choice. That is crazy to me. Have sort you of. seen Thoroughly Modern Millie yet? No. She's pretty fun in that. But anyway. And so those details that we see, that Mogan David extra heavy Malaga wine, <laughs> the way she ate, apparently that was her as well. I think it was fortunate that it turned out to be her, her doing all of that stuff, because she tells stories of winning the crew over by knowing how to strategically deploy these aspects of her personality. They eventually became very protective of her during the course of the production. Ida Lupino, I think, told similar stories about having to navigate this predominantly male environment that way. And it's her intelligence again that I think drives her to directing. She said that if she had to pick her favorite aspect of filmmaking, it was directing because you can't control your acting or your writing in terms of how good it's going to come out. But directing, you stay in control and you can think about all of those elements, which seems like something that would be constantly rotating in her mind. Well, she's accepted his proposal, and 
Henry's homicidal tendencies begin to spill out. It's only even been a few hours that he's been engaged and already this is where he is. And I think this is also something that Elaine May is exceptional at. You look at something like Mikey and Nikki or Ishtar, it's the same thing. She introduces these ideas in a way that's just so nonchalant and matter of fact that you end up in these extreme or absurd circumstances without even realizing how you got there. We have smoothly transitioned to a place that for the first time in his life, he has a motivation to do something aside from indulge in whatever aimless whims he has. And the choice that he makes is murder. And apparently this is just the case in every aspect of her life because shout out to one of my favorites. We meet Jack Weston right here. I have loved him since I watched the four seasons about 50 times on the movie channel back in 1981. Dirty dancing for me. <laughs> He's not having this engagement and he has so many great lines here. As your lawyer, I forbid it. He has no <laughs> business doing this. And the thing that really strikes me in this scene, I appreciate how she's aware of how she's thought of. Plain and shy, and after a while you get used to it. And I wanted to ask you about how you perceive her perception. An effort is made to portray her a little bit as gullible, to trusting, kind of a shrinking violet. Is this selective on her character's part? I grappled with that as we were watching it, because you mentioned clear-eyed before. And we see that in the proposal scene, and we see it again here, that she's totally going for this idea of happiness with Henry, which seems like a pipe dream to me, but can completely nail in the clearest words the rest of the situation. It's like there's this blind spot just for that. I have a slight argument that that's not the case, but we'll discuss that at the end. Yes, because I did read something that she said about what her intention was throughout. So do we want to reveal it here or do we want to no, wait? I'm going to save it a little okay. bit. Okay. I will say if nothing else, it keeps me on the edge of my seat. I want to see what happens. I want to see how she changes and evolves or doesn't. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's intriguing. Even knowing what her intention was the whole time. But obviously on a first viewing, you may not have that in your head. It seems like she can see everything with her lawyer. How far does that extend? And then on top of that, we just have all of these great jokes. Him asking, who do I know that's pregnant in a good sport? Perfect. <laughs> well, then leave it to this clever writing for Henry to come up with the most perfect convincing story once the lawyer confronts the three of them with the truth. It's so perfect. Turning him from this fortune hunter to someone that Henrietta saved. He was on the verge of committing suicide because of his financial situation, and then Henrietta saved him. It's amazing. Right, because her lawyer gets a call from Henry's uncle and finds out about this whole scheme that they've concocted around this loan and him having to get married to pay off the loan. And yet, because of her, all of Weston's plans backfire. And I think this is just another one of these little things that lays the groundwork for what I'm going to reveal here as far as my theory at the end. On the surface, it seems like she misunderstands this so naively and sweetly, but I think it answers my previous question a little bit. The character isn't unaware. She just has an uncommon worldview in which she has chosen to embrace the good. I don't think she ignores the bad. I don't think she has a blind spot in that way we traditionally think of it. She just won't engage with it in any way that gives it an advantage. 
It kind of sounds like one of my other favorite characters, Rose Nyland from The Golden Girls. <laughs> they move forward with the wedding in spite of all of that, even as Jack Weston is trying to talk her out of it as he's walking her down the aisle <laughs> so and then perfect. weeps behind them. Yeah, the day of the wedding, Henry is still exhibiting these childish characteristics. I don't want to share things. I want to own them all by myself. He has no one, and he really wants no one. And it makes me really think about what his days were like prior to this. I don't mean to say that people can't be happy by themselves. I very definitely believe in solitude, and I outright reject the notion that everyone has to be paired up to be complete. This character, though, he seems to derive no pleasure from his pastimes and his isolation. Still, that does not engender sympathy with me, aside from the fact that I will always be sympathetic to Walter Matthau. Do you feel any sympathy or generosity of spirit for this character yet? No, not really, but I completely disagree. I think he takes extreme pleasure in all of his pastimes. It reminds me quite a bit of About a Boy. I feel like it's all so hollow and he just doesn't know. He's just oblivious to his feelings. I think that you're projecting a little bit onto him i think he doesn't know what he doesn't know and there is enough in a horse and the racket club and lutess that's really all that you need but does he know what he knows that he, he doesn't knows? know that he doesn't know well while i am working out the russian nesting dolls of his emotional state as you lay them out here i do want to point out one thing to people that think that my description of her maybe makes her sound a little bit snooty she is not above brilliantly breaking out a toilet flush while people are standing at the altar waiting to get married in this <laughs> sacred moment. And then that bit with Weston is just so great. Him walking her up the aisle, it basically makes this the funniest wedding for me, this side of Little Murders and Donald Sutherland. Another one I love is Mike Nichols' heartburn. That's a great wedding scene too. So they go on their honeymoon and he is clearly planning to poison her. And I keep thinking about how throughout the film this is all such an incredible piece of directorial sleight of hand on her part because i don't know if you feel the same way but it is hardly ever foremost in my mind that his plan is to murder her unless they are directly referring to it she is so clever with the little misdirections of the plot and how we feel her sweet and disarming presence even when she's not on screen that i at least don't strictly pay attention to just how deep black this comedy is. When they're picked up at the airport, where's Mrs. Graham? Who? He says. <laughs> I find myself being startled back to the reality of that part of the story over and over because she's gotten me to just put it out of my mind temporarily. Were you thinking about it always or did it sneak up on you too? Same for me. I was, I guess, thinking about it in the background, but I was more distracted by the thought of, of surely they did not have sex on their honeymoon. Surely that did not happen. I cannot imagine that. They're taking up residence in Henrietta's household, which Harold has described as democratic. <laughs> that includes about 500 people on staff. There's some people doing it in some of the rooms. I was going to say, here's where the consummation is happening. It is with this party of grifters and carnies that run this household. Definitely. My favorite being the elderly woman who's smoking and shuffling down the stairs. I think I have the softest spot for Doris Roberts, I think, throughout this as the housekeeper with that wink. She's a great anchor for this band of thieving weirdos. And she's assumed that he's going to be one of them oh, yeah. and stay in on it, but he's having nothing to do with that. There doesn't need to be anybody in the way between me and this money. 
It's going to be a little harder than he thinks, though, because his plan for poisoning Henrietta, it's quashed by the gardener when he finds out that her preference for organics doesn't lend itself to murder. There's not poison just laying around. So in the meantime, he examines the household ledger and he cleans house of this crooked staff. They're all gone and they're not coming back. Turns out that they were in on it with Jack Weston, the lawyer. He's been kind of running the whole thing. And meanwhile, Henry has hired a whole new hardworking staff. Since this is where I feel like that subplot that was excised by the editors, Robert Evans or whoever else had scissors on this thing, I just keep thinking that it all works so well that I keep coming back to the question of why she couldn't get films made. Because, for instance, in this case, you already referred to this, it is largely Mathau's story. It's his growth, his redemption, his arc. He's a bankable star at the time. This wasn't that long after The Fortune Cookie, The Odd Couple, Hello Dolly, Cactus Flower. It was well received by the critics. It wasn't a huge financial loss. So it has to just come down to her against them in post-production, right? Well, in reality, though, it did go 40 days over scheduling time, which is quite a big deal. And its budget went from $1.8 million to $4 million. Mm, That's also that. a pretty big deal. <laughs> I think there's something, though, really telling, and this was a memo from Peter Bart, who was a Paramount executive at the time, and he said that the first half of the script is a character comedy, and the second was more like arsenic and old lace, kind of a farce, and he liked the first half, but not the second half. And honestly, in a clear-eyed way, I can kind of understand and appreciate that. I do like the film that came out of the cut. Well, the finished product is obviously quite different from what she intended, but you say you like it when you watch this. Do you feel like anything's missing? I don't, though at the same time, I tend towards comedies that are very dark. So maybe if there was still some of that murder and then getting away with murder that she'd envisioned, maybe I still would have loved it in the same way. I don't know. And we have no way of knowing. Well, at least we have the description of it. It gives us a general idea, and I think you're right. I would have enjoyed this, too. There were two murders in addition to what you see happening here, and that made for an even more complex and downbeat ending. In Elaine May, she tells a great story about filming the scene where Mathau poisons Jack Weston and how fascinating it was to watch Mathau throughout the whole thing. This was in one of the original subplots, right? Right. She asked him later after they were watching the dailies, what his actor's secret was for that scene. And he said he was playing that when Weston died, he was going to eat him, which I love. <laughs> it makes me want to see it that much more. It ran three hours, which is probably not the best thing for trying to get a comedy into the theater yeah, at that point. very true. But you know my tendencies. I like things dark. I like to support directors making the film they want to make without interference. Plus, that subplot that was cut out has William Hickey in it, who's one of my favorites. That being said, like you, only knowing it in this form, I love what's here for its warmth and its weirdness. And that may be something that's still a little bittersweet for her to hear. That wasn't her point, so I get it. It wasn't supposed to be a romantic comedy. The experiment was, can we make this lead an unsympathetic murderer and still not lose the audience? And I think she was right to fight for it. It's that danger from that that lies beneath the comic elements that make this so substantial, substantial enough to come back to it again and again. And that thing with Carol Channing that you mentioned, 
I still don't know how I feel about that. I could really see it working now that you say that with May making these smart directorial choices, but I could also see it being a disaster as well. But ultimately, was May just too close to it? It could be. I think Mathal suggested maybe the director should not also edit their own film. But I guess what we're saying, the Holy Grail would be a Fanny and Alexander style three hour cut of this film that we get to see in episodes. How about that? Well, I think the point that Mathal makes too, it's it's a good point. That does happen sometimes. For instance, I think you could make a good case, for example, that the original theatrical cut of Apocalypse Now is better than the Redux version. The thing that we just can't get away from is that she was pretty much the only woman directing films in Hollywood in that era. So we know for a fact that we can't ignore how sexism was brought to bear on this story. But I do think if Mike Nichols, for instance, submitted a three-hour version of The Graduate, that wouldn't have flown either. How much of it, though, do you feel is for different reasons? It seems like, I think more than anything, she didn't fit in a studio system, and especially not in the Paramount system in 1971. Maybe if she were Roman Polanski possibly she could have turned in a two-hour and ten-minute version, but that would be about it. But do you feel like that's because she is the accumulation of events and circumstances that make up Elaine May and not that it makes up a woman? Is that right? Yes, I think it is singular to her as well. I go back and forth because, for instance, the way she was treated by the judge in the case when she sued Paramount, I think it speaks a lot to that, uh, what are you thinking, little girl? I feel some of that coming off of the actual litigation for this. They totally dismissed her concerns, even though she had final cut contractually because the judge watched the film and he thought it was fine. And I think something Warren Beatty said plays a part in this as well. And I hadn't thought about this. He felt like she never had a real producer in her pocket, somebody who would protect her and keep everything moving. And I think that's a good point. Then she's the only one left fighting for the specific vision that is in her head and the only one who could realize it. And so then it's taken away from her because no one else is there to stand up for her. And it was three hours. <laughs> well, coming back into this household that's so different, I think it's allowed them times that I really like, which is more time together getting to know each other. And I love this idea of Henrietta encouraging him to become a teacher. He's got this BA in history after all. And it's from that standpoint of all of these awesome things we could do together when we're both teaching, grading papers together, going to school together. I find myself getting almost a little misty-eyed over my clear eyes when I think about this idea. Well, Henry's not, at least not yet. This does not sound like a great idea to him. Fortunately, though, he has something else to occupy his mind as we're going through this. He has set about reforming the household. He's found his calling. And for me, this is what the movie turns on right here. He finds meaning in competency. And I think if this doesn't happen, I think she dies without a doubt. What he sees as her hopelessness, in addition to being an irritant, has now given him purpose and a direction similar to hers with her botany. Is that the part you could relate to the most? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I think I feel similarly to you, and I will quote a specific line that sort of summed it up for me that made me misty the way that you were talking about. But in the meantime, Harold, his manservant, he is very fond of Henrietta, and he is beginning to lay the groundwork to hopefully soften Mathau's heart. 
this relationship is really fascinating to me. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here in miniature about class and station and responsibility. Harold embraces this power structure and the status that the job confers upon him by default. And as long as he's being paid, he will support Henry indefinitely. I'm also sure that Harold sees himself as above and apart from the staff that they encountered when they first arrived at her house. He's a better class of servant. And then only one of these two men is considering murdering an innocent woman, which at first seems to give Harold a distinct claim to the moral high ground. But does he relinquish that claim, though, by not acting more overtly to prevent Henry's plot or to warn Henrietta? Add to that that this is Henry's longest ongoing relationship outside of his uncle, if a paid one, and there is a lot to think about here. I think you're now just talking about a British comedy at this point. That doesn't belong here. Well, did anyone discover a fern in Brideshead Revisited? Because that's where we are <laughs> here. Her discovery that she made when they were on their honeymoon, it turns out to be legitimate. This is the first time this species has been documented, and she named it for him. No one has ever done anything this thoughtful for him. And she couldn't have done it without him. He gave her the confidence, and their honeymoon was literally the impetus for the discovery just based on geographical location. Do you think that he is at all moved by this moment? How do you read it? I do. I love that he's first frustrated that she's done this. She didn't name it after herself, but instead she's given him this legacy. That word is important to him. A kind of immortality. And maybe again, that's a bit of misdirection because I start to think, oh, okay, we're heading off in a different direction. Maybe he's not thinking about murder anymore. Eh, I wouldn't exactly bet on it at this point. <laughs> it's true. Because they're about to go on this vacation together, which this may be the perfect opportunity for him to do away with her. And this is the line that I was talking about just a few minutes ago that moved me so much. My favorite non-comedic line in the whole film comes here near the end when she says, our entire marriage has felt like one long field trip. I feel like that's one of the nicest things anyone could ever say to me. And it really made me think, Elaine May probably writes great letters. It's offset soon enough, though. She's once again a mess at the campfire. You're all sticky, Henrietta. I spilled the honey. <laughs> you can just see the frustration never goes away. And I was really aware at this point how often they were saying it. Of the choice of their names, Henry and Henrietta, I really like how this choice underscores the two sides of a coin. He's idle, she's focused. He lives, to me at least, a rather joyless life, and she seems to take great satisfaction in her modest pursuits. He's preoccupied with death, specifically hers. She's preoccupied with life, specifically plant life. And by extension, that sort of immortality achieves through work and study. It's really a nice touch, I think. His chance has arrived. They're going over the rapids in this canoe and... She can't swim, we learn, right at the least opportune moment for her. The canoe overturns, she's stuck clinging to a log, and Henry is able to save himself and get on shore, and is devising a story for the authorities. But it's that moment of seeing their fern, the fern that's named after him, and he realizes he's lost his token, and he goes in after her. And so our ending is rather heartwarming in a sense. She tells him, I can depend on you always. And this idea of teaching is brought back up as they are literally walking into a sunset. So Elaine May 
did not get away with murder. Henry did not get away with murder. That was really important to her. And instead, the story becomes about this idea of personal redemption, even, and possibly an idea of love, though. Do you find the ending heartwarming? I do, and considerably more than it would have played had those other elements been left in where this would have just been a life sentence for him shackled to her, rather than this at least small step towards embracing a life of these smaller pleasures. He is capitulating still, but not in such a way that you feel like it's an eternal punishment for him. He is opening up and embracing this at least a little bit. At this point, she still sees more in him than he can see in himself. Do you feel like he is a difficult partner to read? How much of this ending is supposed to indicate that she knew his darker intentions? Well, here's where we spoil it by mentioning what Elaine May said, which was that I decided that I knew Henry wanted to kill me. But if I did everything right, if I got him to like me, maybe he wouldn't. And that to me is fascinating. And I think it opens up the film, as you said, for repeated viewings. And I like still, with the excising of this subplot, that it still remains cockeyed, as Roger Ebert said, by the way. That's what I appreciate in it. It feels like we're in a new beginning. Oh, gosh, duh. A new leaf that yep. just occurred to me. <laughs> in a way that's fun, but doesn't pander to any of us. Yeah, I think I felt like she knew all along, just because she seemed so astute in other ways that I don't think she could have missed it. There is a little bit of that eternal optimist in her that goes beyond pragmatism here to think that this love is real, or maybe that he can overcome his reservations or malicious designs. But I think what makes the difference, it works on both sides. The other half of that is that he's still more oblivious to all of this than her. His confusion over that is enough to save her. And I think when they walk off into the sunset, he's still not completely aware of how much exactly he feels for her. And that's equal parts, sharp writing, and then Mathau's persona and performance. At least he got an inkling of it in time to pull her from the river. And that bit about her knowing, but still hoping that she could be a good enough person, Elaine May is just the person to do that. And as to a partnership, it's again not one that we think of in that traditional romantic way. And I don't think it has to be. And that's what's cool about it and different. So when it all comes down, is this a happy ending? If so, is that earned? Because I like that it's not overly sentimental in this resolution. How do you feel? I think so too. And I think Henrietta worked so hard for both of them that she earned it for both of them. And clearly earned everything that she got up until that point. And I do believe that he's given her the confidence to move forward, so I think that that means that he's earned his new arc. Well, before we leave, I do want to come back to this question of why no more work from her. And I come back again to Ishtar, and I think about something that Dustin Hoffman said, that she wanted to make her movie. Some people can get away with that, some people can't. But at the end of the day, there's a reason why Ishtar works for some people and doesn't for others. And I think about that idea of just being smart enough, as you mentioned, that some people will spend a lifetime on doing something that they're passionate about, even if they're not great at it, rather than being first rate with no soul. 
And I think she's always going to persevere with the stuff that she's most passionate about and stick with that vision. So sometimes that's going to result in something that everybody loves, but not always. Well, for my recommendation, I'm going to stick with that vision too. And I'm going to recommend Ishtar. That's right. I said it. Ishtar. And I know back when I said that thing at the beginning about her batting a thousand, that there were probably some people out there that said to themselves, wait a minute, even Ishtar? Yes, even Ishtar. I love this movie. It was probably one of the very first movies that I raved to you about way back when, and that Blu-ray of it was one of the very first gifts that you ever gave me. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Ishtar is from 1987, if you're not aware of that. Directed by May and starring Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, Isabella Gianni, Charles Grodin, and Jack Weston again. And it's a riff on the Bob Hope, Bing Crosby road movies. And it's about two singer-songwriters who grossly overestimate their abilities that wander into geopolitical intrigue while they are performing in Morocco. I think her idea of having Beatty and Hoffman play against type is a great idea. I think she never had a better delivery vehicle for these precise, dry, droll lines as Charles Grodin. He is the perfect mouthpiece, aside from her and Mike Nichols, for her style of writing. And on top of all this, we have those songs. Is that Paul Williams? Did he do those? Oh, I love Paul Williams. They're perfect. So much. Bugsy Malone, Phantom of the Paradise, this. He wrote these terrible songs for them to perform, and they are absolute genius. I think that part of it may appeal to me more with my music background, but if you have ever tried to write a song, you know how perfect these scenes are of them collaborating. I would buy that Rodgers and Clark record in a hot second. What about you? Well, speaking of comedies with darkness, I picked what was an inspiration for A New Leaf, and that's Monsieur Verdoux from 1947. Directed and starring Charlie Chaplin, and he also wrote it from a story by Orson Welles. And it also stars Martha Ray, William Frawley, and Marilyn Nash. Chaplin plays Henri Verdoux, a longtime bank teller who turns to the business of marrying and murdering wealthy widows to support his wife and child. Now, like this film, there is still conflict around how much the story was altered and who took control, and how much control was taken. I'm referring specifically to Orson Welles and Charlie Chaplin. Now, because of the time it came out, I think it can definitely fit into the noir canon. And because that tone is definitely more in the dark humor range, I think that's why it did better in Europe than it did in America. And I also really like, as I mentioned with Mathau, the opportunity to see Charlie Chaplin in a different light, kind of along with The Great Dictator, seeing him play a different character. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Ishtar and Monsieur Verdoux. And that brings us to the end of episode 122. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. 
Laura Cannon and the Fatal Films Podcast, The Fine Gentleman at Fuds on Film, The Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast, Brian Sauer, Stephen Ray Garza, The Complete Podcast, Michael Muck Erdley, E.F. Bartlam, and Jonathan Crawl. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 